If you'll um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12 and stand when you find that, 1 Kings 12. I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now it came about when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard of it, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon while he was living in Egypt, they sent and called him. That Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, and then return to me. So the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, will serve them, grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and he consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? And the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. We'll pray. God, I thank you um, again just for your life and your love for us. Thank you for the life that you have, have extended to us in Jesus, who has given himself for us, that all who believe in him might have eternal life. And Lord, we just knowing know that in that relationship with you that we have through faith in Christ, you have imparted your Holy Spirit to us, that we might hear your voice and be taught by you. And we pray that that would be true now. And thank you, God, for all that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I've been gone for a while, and I want to thank um, Kelly and John both for um, filling in for me um, during the month of August. I appreciate the elders of the church very much that they allowed Patsy and I to have this time off to rest and, and um, just renew. And the board for His Hill blessed us with a cruise to Alaska. So we were there for um, 12 days, longest cruise I've ever done. I, we, in fact, I had to, couldn't help but, but think that probably it was the longest period of time that Patsy and I had ever had, just the two of us with nobody that, else that we knew. So I was afraid she might push me overboard sometime during the <laughs> cruise, but I'm still here, so we're still married, and so it was a good, good time, and very restful and you know, a great time. Um, I preached twice while I was on the cruise, didn't expect that to happen, but Princess Cruise Lines, um, they have a, an interdenominational church service on Sunday mornings, and so we showed up. I wasn't even sure whether I needed to bring a Bible or not because I didn't know how that would go, but I did bring a Bible. And there was a crew member from Africa, from Kenya, 
knows the Lord, and he was in charge of the service, but he announced, he says, all I'm doing is providing a program, but this is a passenger-led service, 30-minute service. So I need somebody to volunteer to open in prayer, somebody to give a word of testimony, somebody to preach, and somebody to close in prayer. And so I'm going, oh my. And so um, I, I, I volunteered. And so I only had 10 minutes to preach, but I, I took the opportunity, and then on the second Sunday, I um, expanded it to 15 minutes, figured it's the end of the cruise, what can they do? Um, probably shouldn't tell you that because you're thinking, he can preach for 10 minutes? <laughs> we didn't know. We got back and we went down to, the, to um, um, uh, um, Port Aransas for a few days with the family. All, all of us were together and that was great. Um, caused quite a commotion. You may have heard on the news that they thought there was a sighting of a beluga whale. And then somebody said it was a great white. And then others just said, no, it's Moby Dick. No, it was me. I was out there and, you know, <laughs> that's what... <laughs> So anyway, none of those things were true. I was floating out in the water and scared, scared a lot of people. But Oh my. Okay. We were in 1 Kings um, a month ago, and we finished up with the life of Solomon. And um, I'm just going to go ahead and continue on with 1 Kings. And as we just read in the scripture, this is about his son, Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam um, was not a good king, unfortunately. And once we come to Rehoboam, with the starting of his reign, with every king from Rehoboam on, the Bible tells us exactly whether this is a good king or a bad king. So we're not left to try and figure it out. God gives us his own commentary on each of these kings. And typically, he, he, he summarizes their life in one little statement that's brief enough that you could put it on a gravestone. And so Rehoboam's no exception here. He was probably the oldest son of Solomon. He is 41 years old, it says, that when he became king. And so Solomon reigned for 40 years, and that tells us that Solomon was already married a father with a one-year-old son when he became king. So very likely, Rehoboam was the eldest of all of Solomon's children, and he had many because, he remember, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so he would have had hundreds of children. Rehoboam, um, there's no way that he can continue in his father's legacy. The world had been coming to Israel for 40 years, bringing all of their wealth and Israel has become the wealthiest, most powerful country on the earth. That's the pinnacle. But Solomon, despite his wisdom, also used that 40 years for his own selfish gain. He ruled to satisfy himself. And he compromised all of Israel by allowing his foreign wives to set up idolatry in the very country of Israel, even in Jerusalem and in the surrounding vicinity. And so when Rehoboam comes on the throne, even though Israel is still rich and powerful, already it is fractured because of the moral corruption that his father has introduced into the land. 
And Solomon didn't have to put Rehoboam on the throne. He could have put any of his sons on the throne. Remember, Solomon was not the firstborn for David. He was like number six down the line. Rehoboam's mother was, um, was a, um, herself an idolater. And in fact, the, the, she was an Ammonite, and the brand of idolatry of the Ammonites was the worship of Moloch through human sacrifice. Now, as I said before, I don't think that Solomon, there's no indication that Solomon allowed any of his wives to practice human sacrifice. But nonetheless, it opened the door to that. And it'll be a not a very long time before that begins to take place in both Israel and Judah. Sadly, fathers often do not have the spiritual impact on the lives of their kids that they should. And it is very likely that this mother had more of a spiritual impact on the life of her son than Solomon did. So when Solomon becomes king, because Solomon, when Rehoboam becomes king, because Solomon is off the throne, all of that tribute money has cut off like turning off the water from a water spigot. This is not the prosperous country it once was. This is a time of economic recession. And so Rehoboam calls all Israel together at Shechem that he would be anointed king. He's already king, but now he's looking for all the nation to recognize that. He chose Shechem, it seems, because it's not Jerusalem. It's not Judah. It's in the territory of Ephraim. Um, actually, Manasseh, not Ephraim. And it sits in the center of the country. It's 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And the, and the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim had been perpetually resentful of Judah because they thought they should be the favored tribes because, after all, they came from Joseph, the favored son. But all the attention is on Judah. And so during this entire time, the Bible tells us, Psalm specifies this, that Ephraim and Manasseh were jealous and they were divisive, they were antagonistic toward Judah and the rest of the tribes. Rehoboam would have known that. And so it seems that Rehoboam is, is wanting to be crowned king in Shechem so as to, make, to reach out to Ephraim and Manasseh and try to coalesce all these 12 tribes because he could see they were fracturing. Solomon, for all of his wisdom, did something that probably wasn't very wise in addition to taking all those wives. He divided up the nation into 12 territories. And he made each of the 12 territories responsible for one month of the year to provide for all of the needs of the palace. So the whole nation was divided into 12 territories and they rotated which month they had to supply everything the king needed. One problem with that plan. Judah was exempted. The largest tribe was not part of that 12 division of the, of the nation of Israel. And that brought greater animosity on the part of the 12 of the tribes toward Judah. Not only did he exempt them from having to provide for the palace, he probably exempted Judah from forced labor and exempted them from taxes. And now in that situation, Jeroboam, Rehoboam comes on the throne. 
So it says, now it came about when Jeroboam, verse 2, the son of Nebat heard about it. He was still in Egypt. Jeroboam was one of the enemies of Solomon. He came back. And then in verse 4, they make a request of Rehoboam. This is his coronation party. They say, we are soliciting you. We have a, we have a request. Your father made our yoke hard. We want you to lighten the hard service which your father put on us, and we will serve you. This hard yoke was manual, forced labor, and it was also taxation. Jeroboam was in charge of the forced labor at one time, and he got upset with Solomon, and Solomon decided to try and kill him, and so he fled for his life and went to Egypt. And now he comes back. And they are very inclined toward Jeroboam because he knows what it was like. So this is not an unreasonable request. And Rehoboam actually did something smart here in verse 6. He consulted with, he says, give me three days to think about it. And then verse 6, he consulted with the elders who served Solomon, his father, while he was still alive. Now, if you're a counselor to the wisest man who ever lived, you're probably pretty smart. And so this was a good plan. Go to the elders and say, what would you tell me to do? And they speak with one voice. And they said very clearly in verse 7, If you will be a servant to this people today, will serve them, grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Reasonable words in response to a reasonable request. I can remember when President Obama was, when he was running for office and, and our country was, was in a recession. And before he had become president, he said, it is economics 101. You do not raise taxes during a recession. And then he became president and he raised taxes. This is economics 101. Israel is going through a recession. Lower the taxes. And so they're saying, listen to them. This is a reasonable request. Speak good words to them. Serve them. And they will serve you. Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, Thus I have hated all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. He must have understood that Rehoboam was not up to the task. In Rehoboam, it says in verse 8, without having heard any other counsel, forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. He's not heard any other counsel, but he doesn't like what he's heard. There's different ways to state this. You can say he was not looking for counsel. He was looking for confirmation. He had already made up his mind. He's not looking for advice. He's looking for affirmation. 
If you're going to go to an older person and ask them for advice, and you've already made up your mind on what you want to do, don't ask them. You're just hurting yourself. You're shooting yourself in the foot. Don't even ask them. You're wasting their time. Now, we don't know all the reasons why he didn't like this advice, this counsel. I have my idea. But look what happens next in verse 9. So he said to them, what do you counsel me? These people who said, lighten the yoke. And we know, I just read it earlier. They said, make it harder. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed. In verse 13, and the king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So he liked that advice. It is a hard thing for any person, man or woman, but maybe especially men, to appear weak. To appear weak. And for the king, the ultimate power in the nation, to say, I will yield and I will serve you, looks like weakness. Weakness. And we all despise weakness in ourselves and we despise it in others. I've told this story before and I didn't ask my dad for permission, so sorry, dad. You just have to bear. Every little boy has his dad on a pedestal, and I was no exception. This is dove season, so this is fresh in my mind. Um, I used to go dove hunting with my dad and my grandfather, his dad, and I was a bird dog. There's no, you don't raise bird dogs when you live in South Texas and bird hunting. You raise sons, and, and your son's bird dog for you. And it's just a ride passage. You will not get your first shotgun until you've been a bird dog. And I like bird dogging, for, especially for my grandfather. And I was sitting by his lawn chair out in the field. He could barely walk. He was almost blind. He was blind in one eye, glaucoma in the other eye. And, but he was a fantastic shot. And he would say, Charlie, you tell me where the birds are coming from and I'll knock them down and you go pick them up. And so I'd say, here comes one. And he'd pow, and I'd run out in the field bring it back, give it to him, sit down. He'd pat my head, good dog. <laughs> it was wonderful. So I ran out in the field. He shot a bird. I pick up the bird. I stand up, start to run back. And there's a hunter on the other side of the field with a 12-gauge shotgun shooting level with the ground at a bird. Bluey, 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 third bluey. I got shot right in the chest. One BB, but I got shot. And so I went to my grandfather and I said, Pop, I've been shot. And he, I said, where? And I opened up my shirt and there was a drop of blood. And he goes, by golly, you have been shot. And so he called my dad. Porter, come over here. And he says, Charlie's been shot. Show him, Charlie. And I opened up my shirt. And he goes, by golly, you have been shot. 
who shot you? And I hadn't taken my eyes off the man across the field. And I said, that man over there. He said, stay here. And my grandfather said, he's going to take care of this. <laughs> my dad marched over, gets over there. This man is head and shoulders taller than my dad. And I see my dad going, rah, 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 rah. I can't hear what he's saying. And I hear the, see the guy go like this to my dad. I'm going, oh, not good. <laughs> my dad picked him up, threw him across the hood of his car, and climbed up on top of him. And it looked like he was going to hit him. And I saw the man doing like this. And so my dad got off the car, walked back, and said, he's not going to shoot you anymore. <laughs> my grandfather called me Shotgun Charlie all the time after that. <laughs> so that made an impression on me. And I tell you that story because um, to lead into the next one. It wasn't very long after that, I came home from elementary school, and there was a legal notice stapled to the front of our door. And I couldn't understand it, because I'm elementary school, but it knew, I knew it said something about this property auction 60 days. So my dad, when he came home, he explained to us what was going on. It was a house that they were renting, and the owner had gotten in trouble with the bank, and the bank was repossessing the house. And we had 60 days to either buy the home or we were going to be on the street. Up to that time, though we went to church and we prayed before meals, that was the extent of the practice of our faith. And so my dad informed us. And so as children, six kids, you're looking to your dad. And you're not looking to the Lord. You're looking to your dad. That's what kids do. 30 days go by, no money. 40 days, 50 days, and my dad brought us all into the living room one evening and said, get on your knees. And all eight of us were on our knees, and that never happened. And he says, there is nothing more I can do. We must cry out to God. Now, I can tell you, seeing my dad on his knees crying out to God made a bigger impact on me than seeing him throw a man across the hood of a car. Now, as a man, I can tell you, I would not want to be in the position of having to be on my knees in front of my children. I would rather them think that I am Superman than less than a man. We all have that in us. But seeing my dad cry out to God and orient us to him made a much better impact on my life than seeing him throw a man across a car. Rehoboam, at 41 years old, never saw his dad weak. Never. His dad has known nothing but prosperity. He has been multiplying <coughs> wives like crazy, and that in itself was a statement of personal power. So even if he would have said, of course I'm a weak man. <coughs> of course I can do nothing in my own strength. His actions said something else. Every day his actions advertised personal ability. So no matter what he preached with his words, his life was preaching something totally different. Now I am not inclined to blaming parents for the choices of their adult children. But nonetheless, 
we do set an example for our kids. And it is hard to be publicly weak. And when you have a dad who for 40 years never showed any hint of weakness, that does not help the boy. And again, I do not blame Solomon for Rehoboam's choices. But Solomon should have acknowledged the truth by taking one wife rather than 700. And Rehoboam, in his refusal to appear weak, takes the strong, harsh, demanding, oppressive, tyrannical position that so many people and authorities do today. Matthew 20, Jesus called the disciples to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is leadership. My dad wants to tell you the rest of the story. We didn't, we didn't get kicked out of the house. The Lord answered that prayer miraculously, and we, he was able to purchase the home. And we're grateful for that. Solomon wrote, and this would have been very easy for Rehoboam to look up, my son, do not forget my teachings and let your heart keep my commandments. Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. He would have only had to go to the third chapter of Proverbs to remember that his dad had said that. It's as though he has no recollection of anything his dad ever taught. Proverbs chapter 12, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We had a professor when I was in my senior year of college who was not granted tenure, and he was very offended. He was a young professor, um, was, was the chairman of department head of the English department. I um, lifted weights with him, ran with him as a bunch of uh, the guys did. We were in his home on a regular basis. He was the only professor we were on a first name basis with. And so he, he violated um, school policy by grousing to the seniors that he was close to about not getting tenure. And we were worked up. And because I was an RA my senior year, a bunch of the guys in the dorm came to me and they said, Charlie, you need to go to the president of the university and tell him how wrong this is. You're the guy. God has raised you up for this time. And man, they're just getting fired up, you know, and I'm a Mr. Justice guy. And yeah, yeah, this is an injustice. Yeah, yeah, I am an RA. You know the president. You go down. You all go, yeah, okay. 
So I went down to his office and I stood before his administrative assistant and I said, I'm, I would like an appointment to see the president. Well, he's a busy man. It'll be about three weeks. We'll make the appointment. 15 minute appointment, three weeks from now. Fortunately, spring break came up and I came home. And as I did every year at spring break, I went to see an old retired missionary that lived in Kerrville. He was about 900. And just a godly man. And I remember sitting in his living room there. His wife was, was preparing dinner for us. And he was asking me about college and how things were going. And, and I told him, you know, I said, man, there's just this huge injustice. This professor, he's excellent. And he's not been granted tenure. And it's just so wrong. And I've made an appointment with the president. And when I get back from spring break, I'm going to go into the president and tell him how wrong this is. And this godly old man, he closes his eyes puts his head down, and I'm thinking, nap time? And, I, and I, I'm just stupid. And, and, and so he's, he's praying. He's so upset, and he just doesn't say a word. He just closes his eyes, and he's praying. I know he's saying, Jesus, give me grace from my young idiot friend sitting in front of me. <laughs> and after a couple minutes, he, he opened his eyes and raised his head, and very gently, not a trace of anger in his voice, he said, Charles, always called me Charles. When I was in university, no young man, for any reason whatsoever, would make an appointment with the president of the university. So gentle in his response. I almost missed it. But God ran me through with a sword. Who do you think you are? So I got back to school and I kept my appointment, but I did not say a word about that professor. Years went by, I'm working at his hill, and I heard that former professor, he left the school the next year, that he was in San Antonio on business. And, and so I got a hold of him and one of my brothers and I, we took him out for lunch. And I said, I'd like to circle back around to when you didn't get tenure. Boy, he was quick on it. And he said, best thing that ever happened in my life. That godly man heard from God, and God used him to put me where I am today. I would never be where I am today if it hadn't been for that godly man. And I'm sitting there thinking, I am so glad I kept my mouth shut. But the real lesson there was not that I wanted to take the strong posture, but how that godly man responded to me. In James chapter 3, it says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And then just a few verses later, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Now I've committed those verses to memory and there have been many times I wished I'd remembered them. <laughs> the wisdom from above is first peace, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. That doesn't mean that there aren't times when we have to be strong with people. 
Paul will write to Titus and say, there are many rebellious men among you who must be silenced. Reprove them severely. But then the purpose that they may be saved, that they may, may be sound in the faith. But I have to think that Paul understood that even there's times when you have to say to people, no, we can't go there. We can't continue to do this. It can still be peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. As soon as Rehoboam opened his mouth, he lost the battle. He determined to be hard, to be strong, in his refusal to be weak. You think about how many battles we have fought that we lost just by the tone of our voices, by being hard and unreasonable and demanding instead of dying to self. And when nobody around you is doing anything other than the hard, demanding, unreasonable thing, and they're telling you, stand up for yourself, it's all the harder. We're just like Rehoboam. Never seen it. And now I'm being asked to die, to serve. I don't even think it's legitimate. Doesn't matter. Jesus in John chapter 5 said, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And I love this. And my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will. But the will of him who sent me. I don't know who said it, but in my preparing for this sermon, I came across somebody that said, that Rehoboam's problem is that he forgot that the king is never higher than second in command. Isn't that a great statement? No matter what authority you might have in life, as a mother, as a father, as an employer, you are never higher than second in command. Because God is in charge. God is the head. And Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, we know what happens. The people are going, really? And they leave. And they rally around Jeroboam. And ten tribes go with Jeroboam. And this begins what we now call the divided kingdom. There was the united kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon, and now the beginning of the divided kingdom. And it'll never be united. Jesus will be the one who will truly bring the nation back together again. When that happened, 
Rehoboam says, well, we can't have this. And so he sent the man in charge of forced labor to talk to them. They killed him. <laughs> wrong emissary, the wrong guy to send to try and bring conciliation is the guy who's in charge of forced labor. They killed him. So then he says, well, I'm going to go to war and force them to come back. And for the first time, he does something wise. And a prophet comes to him and says, no, you better not. Do not fight against your brothers. God has permitted this. And so he listened and did not fight against them. And for the first three years of his reign, Rehoboam did pretty well. He, he made some good decisions. He fortified areas of the country that needed to be fortified. But after three years, he turned away from the Lord. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, where it gives the summary of his life. 2 Chronicles 12. It took place that when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, that he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Three years, he did okay. In the fourth year, completely forsakes the Lord. So God brings the Egyptians. And they took 156 cities captive, the Egyptians did. All over Judah, on into Israel to the north, and Rehoboam humbles himself before God, and God stopped the Egyptians so that they didn't take Jerusalem. But then God said this, 2 Chronicles 12, 8, They, Israel, will become his slaves, or Judah, so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. I have that highlighted in my Bible. I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon, and he says, God does not let his people sin successfully. God does not let his people sin successfully. They have chosen to forsake the God of Israel, and God has allowed them to become servants of Egypt so that they might learn the difference between God's service and the service of the nations. The prodigal son's father let him go. He thought he had it so bad under his dad. And when he is eating pig slop, he remembers how good he had it under his dad. Sometimes I think that moms and dads come to a place they have to let their kids go so that they can learn the difference between the service of God and the service of the world. He humbled himself, and the anger of the Lord turned away from him so as not to destroy him completely. And also the conditions were good in Judah. But the last statement about Rehoboam, he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. It's as simple as that. Why do people do evil? Because they want to. They want to. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. I don't think because Rehoboam is not listed as a good king, 
I don't think we will see him in heaven. I hope I'm mistaken. But I do know whether it's a Christian or an unbeliever. We will do evil if we do not seek, set our hearts to seek the Lord. We will do evil if we do anything on our own initiative. Rather than living as Jesus, I cannot do anything on my own initiative. But we will do what is right and just when it is not our will we seek, but the will of God. It's not complicated. We many times don't know what the right thing is, but as we live in dependence and faith upon Christ, He will direct our steps. He will lead us into righteousness. He will give us a wisdom that we do not possess on our own. Like Solomon, who said, God, I need wisdom. We can do the same. David was a man who loved the people and served them. Solomon was a man who lived to satisfy himself and he used the people. And Rehoboam knew, knew them both. And he's got a choice. Choose grandfather's way, choose dad's way. And he said, I'm not going the weak way. And it destroyed the nation of Israel, ripped the nation apart, and he ends up doing evil because he won't set his heart to seek God. It's always my prayer. I read the lives of these men and women. They're here for a reason. You don't have to read a lot of books on leadership. Just read our Bible. You'll give it a pretty good idea of what good leadership and bad leadership looks like. But it's not even about leadership. It's about a godly life. And if we want to finish well, I believe it's as simple as every day starting out and setting your heart to seek the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. It is not about us. It is about Him. Setting your heart each day to seek the Lord. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these um, practical life lessons from real men and women. They weren't any different than us. And I do pray, God, that we would profit from these things, that you, by your Spirit, would bring these things to mind, that we would remember, God, as soon as that hint of, of anger and bitterness and hostility come up in our hearts, that we would remember by the promptings of your Spirit that the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits. And that we, God, would humble ourselves and choose you and your ways. That we would wait upon your spirit, God, to show us the gentle way. That we would be firm and resolute without God being cruel, without being hurtful. But there would be life in our words. And that the very life of Jesus would be expressed through us. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you are more than sufficient for these things. In Christ's name, amen.